Hello, and welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali Alomi. Glad you could join me. I wanted to give a quick shout-out as I started this podcast to Jarez and his crew for tuning into the podcast and for their support. And you messaged me on, on Facebook, so shout-out to you. I'm so glad you guys are enjoying it and having conversations. That's the whole point of this podcast. Um, we were away last week, but we are back in action this week. I'm excited because I get a chance to talk to you about Al-Andalus and Islam in the Iberian Peninsula. I... You know, as a, I'm kind of a broadly trained historian of, of the Middle East. I work in the pre-modern, early modern, and modern period uh, of the Middle East, in particular the pre-modern and modern. Early modern a little bit less, so I'm not, for example, an Ottomanist. Um, although I do, I can teach Ottoman history, I don't do a lot of research uh, in the Ottoman world. Um, and I'm, I'm trained as a world historian, so I have a lot of kind of broad interests in, in Islam, in the Middle East, Muslim identity, gender and sexuality, empires, etc. But if I had to do it all over again, if I could go back and uh, pick another field or in another lifetime, I would absolutely focus on Al-Andalus. It's one of the areas of Islamic history that I find thoroughly fascinating. It's also one of the areas, uh, not only in contact, in which the Muslim world makes really clear contact with Europe, but is so relevant for understanding a lot of the kind of relationships between the Muslim world and Europe today. Uh, the kind of language we see when it comes to, for example, uh, refugees and asylum seekers really comes um, out of a sort of reimagining of this history. And as historians, by really explicating and, and really digging in, we can push back on some of those narratives and reimaginings. It's also just a really, really cool time period. Um, it's a moment of cultural and intellectual blossoming. I mean, uh, there's talks about uh, if you're walking, if you were walking in Al-Andalus's Cordoba, the number of books you would see. So I'm, I'm very excited about this topic, and we're going to actually divide this episode into two episodes, where we'll talk about Al-Andalus, and we'll talk about the Maghreb, North Africa, and, and East Africa, um, and Islam. So I'm going to start off by first giving a kind of really brief chronology of the kind of political history of uh, Al-Andalus, how Islam came to the Iberian Peninsula, just so we can give our rough bearings. There's more research on this that can be covered in any any podcast and i may do future episodes where i dig down deeper on any one of these kind of such uh moments in history but i wanted to give a rough sketch of that and then really dig deeper on the kind of cultural and intellectual history uh of al-andalus so let's start off with how al-andalus becomes muslim iberia it really starts in 711 uh, ce under khalif al-walid who sends a general ibn ziyad um, into the Maghreb and who, from the Maghreb, sails across the straits into the Iberian Peninsula, into what is today Portugal and Spain, and even pushes up a little bit into, into France. Um, and the movement of people, and I say movement in particular because um, even though they were conquests, it's more complicated than we'll talk about that in a second, usually involved a very small Arab population and was actually a, a much broader population of Berbers and Mawalis. Mawalis are kind of these con to Islam, we can kind of consider them third-generation Muslims, if you will. Uh, they had converted from the kind of indigenous population, were often uh, Persian-speaking, etc. But there were, it was a predominantly Berber-centered 
uh, expedition. And that's important to remember. When we talk about Al-Andalus, we tend to look at it as Arabized and often make the mistake of seeing Islamized and Arabized as kind of the same thing, that the two go hand in hand. And that's not true. The reality uh, is that when you look at Islamic history, except for a very short period of time during the Rashidun and early Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus, the majority of Islamic history for hundreds upon hundreds of years um, really takes place outside of the so-called Arab world. It happens in Al in Berber and Al Andalus. Um, it happens in Fatimid, North African uh, Egypt, and it happens in Persianate Baghdad and Bukhara. Eventually, Baghdad kind of falls away for, for and and a series of kind of Persianate cities rises: Bukhara, Balkh, Herat. Um, even Samarkand, uh, this kind of Turco-Persian world, if you will. None of those fall within, while Arabic is the, is the main lingua franca, none of them are what we would consider ethnically Arab. And ethnicity is also a very complicated way of looking at it. When we try to project back ethnicities, the reality is people intermarried, and it was all sorts of messy. But it's not. there's an attempt, really, to kind of see Al-Andalus as an Arabic expedition, and it's not. It's important to recognize the, the contribution of the more Moors and and the Berbers and North Africans, uh, who made up the majority of of the expedition, and even provincially, as administratively, uh, Al Andalus was seen as Ifriqiya, that is a part of North Africa, with Cordoba at, at its center. So it wasn't seen as separate from Africa, but a part of Africa in the kind of Islamic administration. And the Berbers moved through the straits, and they started off as sort of garrison towns, Cordoba. Cordoba, Grenada, and a bunch of these other kind of tours, etc. And then eventually, um, the Berbers kind of spread out throughout the region. So there was a lot of intermarrying, there was a lot of interracial relationships, um, there was a lot of spreading. They didn't stay in garrisons, which is different from the experience of the Levant. In the Levant, the Umayyads develop garrison towns, and they remain in garrison towns for a long time. Arabs remain a very, uh, Muslims remain a very small minority in those areas. But very much like the eastern parts of the region, the eastern parts of the empire, that is the Persianate world, they start off as garrisons, but then they really spread out, which is why, you know, nowadays everyone's doing that, what, 23andMe shit or whatever it's called or Ancestry.com. Everyone's into that stuff, right? Like people are giving each other birthday gifts, like here, spit into this. Like it's, it's weird as hell, but people are really into that. And whenever you do uh, that 23andMe, if you're from um, Spain, Italy, particularly Sicily, you'll often find out, like, what the hell? I have North African and Berber genes, and it, it comes from this particular moment. So that's not a, a advertisement for 23andMe because they don't fund me in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's a little bit of a shit-talking. But if you do 23andMe and you find out that you have Berber you know, ancestry or North African ancestry or Moorish ancestry, it's from this moment because there was a lot of intermingling. And so the Muslims spread from, from 711 on until about 732 uh, at the Battle of Tours. The Battle of Tours is the first real check against Muslim expansion and it is um, between two military figures, Charles Mattel, who becomes the grandfather of the famous Charlemagne, and the general Al-Rafiqi. Al-Rafiqi uh, is, is a commander, military governor of Al-Andalus. And the battle is between po uh, Poitiers and Tours. And it results in the first Christian 
uh, victory over the in uh, expanding Muslims, and it's really kind of by many seen as the beginnings of the Carolingian dynasty. This is not a history of Europe, but if you're interested in the Carolingians, this is kind of the moment for you. Now, it's easy to see and simplify this early history from 711 to 732 as Muslim invaders versus Christian defenders. And in fact, there was an attempt to kind of reimagine that moment as that, and it's not. The reality is it's not just Christian versus Muslim, but it's all sorts of complicated. For example, you have a Muslim general known as Munuza who sides with the Odo the Great of Aquitaine. And the two of them form an alliance against Al-Ghafiqi and Charles Mattel. And so you have Christians and Muslims making allies with one another. In fact, the famed El Cid was hired by Muslim rulers to fight against um, other other Christians. And so there, it's more complicated than, than kind of Muslim invaders and Christian defenders. And in reality, what we see is that, uh, as is the case of the sort of expansions of the Futu into the Persian world, that the indigenous population played a very important role in the expansions. That it wasn't just invaders coming in and conquering, but rather the indigenous population making alliances, uh, becoming part of the army of, of the Muslims. And in particular, the smaller Christian populations and Jewish populations found themselves very eagerly looking forward to uh, kind of allying with the Muslims against the kind of warring Christian countries. But that shouldn't erase the fact that these are fundamentally conquests. They're expansions and they're conquests, but uh, they're more complicated than just a kind of uh, binary way of looking at them. Um, the, this period is not particularly known for its political stability. From about 711 on until about 745, there's a lot of political instability. And that's because this is at the frontiers of empire. This is often the edges. There's Ifriqiya, North Africa, and this is at the edges of Ifriqiya. So you have the, this is the edges of the edges of empire, if you will. And so the caliphate, which was based in Damascus, the Umayyad caliphate, doesn't have a lot of sway. And they rely on the governors in Morocco to actually appoint the governors and commanders in Al-Andalus. So there's like there's a degree of separation from the caliphate that as a result there's not a lot of centralized authority. And so we see that there are rebellions and intrigues in 740 and you have a Berber rebellion in which uh, the Berbers rise up from 740 to 743 against the kind of Arab minority population and they fight back. Um, this results in the Maghreb really falling out of the hands of the Umayyads. While the Umayyads manage to maintain control of Egypt and Libya um, they lose Morocco, and it's believed to be that this is the beginning in which Morocco completely kind of becomes its own kingdom. Not fully yet, but completely becomes a kind of separate entity, autonomous from the Umayyad uh, Caliphate. And that, as a result of this kind of being on the frontiers of empire, being politically unstable, it also became the breeding ground for a lot of Sufi orders. Sufism provided a sort of religious stability that counteracted the political instability, so that, that while the politics were up in the air, and it was never quite clear who was in charge and who was uh, the, the leader or who you were going to give allegiance 
alliances to or who was forming alliances were who. You had Sufi orders offer stability in small communities. Similarly, you found that the Kharajites, if you don't know who they are, check out the first season. The Kharajites, this group of kind of extremist puritanical Muslims that had been pushed out of the Rashidun Caliphate, who had were a result of the death of the fourth Khalif of Sunni Islam and the first Imam of Shia Islam, um, uh, Ali, they were pushed away out of the Levant and really found home in Ifraqiya, North Africa, and, and the Maghrebs. As a result of the Berber rebellions, Morocco kind of becomes its own separate thing, and you had the uh, dynasty emerge in 745, known as the Fihirids, and they rule for roughly about... 10 years. And then in 1050, the Abbasids come in from the Persianate world under Abu Muslim and Asaf, and they come in and they completely overthrow the Umayyad dynasty. And the originally, the kind of the kind of emirate that emerges or this autonomous kingdom that emerges in Al-Andalus was favorable towards the Abbasids. And they're like, okay, we like the Abbasids. Forget the Umayyads. We don't want anything to do with them. But the Abbasids are like, look, you have to submit to our authority. And the autonom- these people who had had autonomous rule for roughly about 50 years or so was like, mm, no thanks, we're going to pass on that. And so they invited the last remnant of the Umayyad dynasty, Abdul Rahman I. Abdul Rahman, they said, look, Abdul Rahman, your people are dead. Your family's dead. You've got nothing left for you in Damascus. Come over our way. We've got a nice kingdom. We'll be friends. Well, Abdul Rahman shows up with a force and he takes over the entire island. So he's invited in as a guest. And he's, he's, the, he's the guest you don't want, right? Because he doesn't just come in, but he takes over. So imagine waking up one day, you know, out of the kindness of your heart, you invited your cousin who just lost all his family members in some type of horrific rebellion, right? Like, come on, cousin, I'll, give, I'll feed you. You can sleep on the couch, you know, until you get on your on your feet and you wake up the next day and he's put up his fucking flag on on your on your refrigerator. He's eaten you out of house and home. Your mangoes are gone. There's no chicken in the refrigerator. The water's down. Like this is what happens, right? Abdul Rahman comes in and just takes over and he establishes the Emirate of Cordoba, which is a completely separate dynasty out of the reach of the Abbasids who had established control in Ifraqiya, in the Levant, and in Mesopotamia and the Persian world. This is the beginning of real Al-Andalus. So up until this point, Al-Andalus had been conquered, but really it hadn't been a unified territory. It was all sorts of back and forth. Now, on 756, under Abdul Rahman, the Emir of Cordoba, you have a unified territory. And it is the beginning of what is known as the kind of golden age of Al-Andalus. And at the peak of this golden age is in the 10th century, from about 912 to about 929, with the descendants, uh, descendant of Abdul Rahman, Abdul Rahman III, who not only continues uh, the territories of his, his great-grandfather, Abdul Rahman, but he actually establishes a caliphate. And that's important. Up until this point, from 756 to about 912, there, this is an emirate. It is an emir, that is a local military commander and governor. Emir means prince, military commander, etc. So for all of you who have friends that are named emir, now you know what it means. Um, so it's an emirate, right? It's a kind of a separate political institution. But it's not a caliphate. There's only The caliphate exists in Baghdad under the Abbasids. But the, with the emergence of a second caliphate, the Fatimids in Egypt, Abdul Rahman III throws his hat in the ring and goes, look, if there's two Khalifs, 
might as well be three caliphs. And so this is known as the era of the three caliphs. There's a caliph in Baghdad, which is the Abbasid Caliphate, a caliph in Egypt, which is the Fatimid Caliphate, and we'll talk about that in a different episode. And there's a caliph in Al-Andalus, which is the, the remnants of the sort of Umayyad uh, Caliphate, the last kind of remnants of it. But, um, you know, that, that caliphate doesn't last particularly long. Even though it is a golden age, culturally and intellectually, the establishment of a caliphate results in a series of fitnas, known as the fitnas of Al-Andalus. These are a series of civil wars that begin right after, not even a hundred years after the establishment of this caliphate. It begins in 1009 with a coup d'etat that leads to the assassination of the Abdul Rahman Sanchello. Uh, and he's killed, and as a result, the territories once again reverts back to the political status that it had in the 700s. And that is a series of kind of local dynasties uh, exerting power. So, for example, in the 11th century, uh, the Almorvarids emerge under Yusuf ibn uh, Tashfin, uh, who, in, who was uh, invited from Morocco to come in and fight King Alfonso VI. Um, and eventually, even those kind of fall, and all that's left is a small emirate in Granada known as the Nasrid Kingdom of Granada, uh, which was an establishment, which was an emirate that is, gets established in 1230 by Muhammad ibn al-Amr. So you have this moment in which a caliphate emerges, a third caliphate emerges in Al-Andalus, and then it all falls apart with an assassination and a coup d'etat in 1009 and the beginnings of what's known as the fitna of Al-Andalus. And now you have political instability and a series of these kind of small emirates that are surrounded by uh, enemy territory. And I say this because from the moment of the Battle of Tours from 732, even though there is this golden age uh, in Al-Andalus, Christians have been uh, ongoing war with the with Al-Andalus. So they've been slowly regaining bits and bits of territory, particularly under uh, Pippin the Short, who absolutely wasn't short in any way, shape, or form. It was probably a joke, um, you know, in the same way as calling like someone who's bald Harry. Uh, so they uh, called him Pippin the Short, and under Charlemagne. And so these territories are kind of shrinking over time. This is known as the Reconquista. Um, and eventually it leads with, with Muslims being fully and completely uh, expelled out of Granada. Granada does eventually fall in the 13th century, 13th and 14th century. It starts with the expelling of Muslims in Narbonne in 759 um, and, and kind of driving them over the Pyrenees by the uh, Carolingian king Pepin the Short, who conquers Aquitaine. He's the grandfather, if I'm not mistaken, of Charlemagne. But the point being that from that moment on, from 759, the Battle of Tours earlier, and then 759 on, there is this attempt to expel Muslims out of the region, and it works. Uh, the, the after the fall of the Caliphate, the the terror there's a deterritorialization. That's a hard word. Let's try that again. Deterritorialization of uh, Muslim lands, and you see Muslims, the Muslim lands of Al-Andalus, slowly shrinking, giving way to Pepin the Short and Charlemagne, until all that's left is Granada, and then. Granada Falls as well. And this is known as the uh, Reconquista, which fundamentally erases all Muslims out of the, out of the sort of territory. Uh, Muslims found it kind of intolerable living under uh, Christian rule, mostly because uh, the Reconquista is followed by the Inquisition. So it's, the Reconquista is not just a reconquering, it's a reconquering and then a 
purging of the land, both particularly of Jews and of Muslims. And so there's an erasing of, of Jews and Muslims from Al-Andalus, and it becomes very difficult. There's a mass migration out of there. And all that remains is kind of the traces of the cultural influence. And that's what I want to talk about now. Now that we've got kind of this weird, complex political history out of the way, let's dive into the actual culture of Al-Andalus, which I think is the most fascinating aspect of this history. But before we go any further, time for a rapid-fire round. That's right, rapid-fire. I haven't done one in ages, and I thought I'd bring it back for this episode so that we could have a little break from, uh, you know, lecture format, if you will. Um, I need to figure out how to do sound effects so that I, <laughs> the sound effects can precede the rapid-fire, like, you know, the klaxon. No, not a klaxon. That sounds too, like... Let's go on a run, and anything involving running is, is something I'm allergic to. Actually, probably one of my greatest fears in life, genuinely, is marrying into a family that's into marathon running. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not afraid of a lot of things. I'm afraid of being forgotten. I'm afraid of marrying into a family that's like, hey, let's go on a Thanksgiving marathon. I'm sorry, what? Oh, it's Christmas. We're going to go. Uh, for some reason, I'm assuming we're celebrating Christmas. I, we're American, whatever, right? It's like, oh, it's Christmas. You know what we're going to do for Christmas this year? A marathon. What? No. So maybe not a klaxon. Maybe we'll use some other sound effect. But anyways, three rapid fire questions. Al-Andalus. It sounds familiar. Where does it come from? Are there certain places that you, where you can still see evidence of Al-Andalus? And what would you recommend as a tour? So, Al-Andalus sounds familiar. Well, you're right. That's because you've probably heard Andalusia, which is the word for the region still, for a particular portion of that region or province. And it comes from Al-Andalus. And so there's a lot of Spanish uh, and Arabic loan words. We're actually going to talk about that in a little bit. Are there places where you can still see uh, evidence of Al-Andalus? Absolutely. You can still see architecture in particular. We'll talk about some other historical traces like uh, agriculture and food and culinary aspects of it and words and clothing etc but we'll definitely uh, you can definitely see it in the architecture you see it in cordoba and the architecture of alhambra uh, granada as well as the alcazar of seville and uh, for those of you that are big game of thrones fans that is the water gardens of dorne it's actually built by a it's by the christian kingdom but it, the water gardens were developed by the muslims um, and all of them have uh, you know this unique architecture known as mudajar architecture which is uh, kind of a spanish or hispanic word for Muslim. Um, and it, it combines the, uh, Moorish architecture, Muslim influences. You have these kind of fortress-like uh, battlements with arcs and domes and calligraphy and really beautiful fine-tuned uh, or, or detailed, I should say, uh, engraving. So you can absolutely still see evidence of Al-Andalus. And if you were going to go on a tour, what tour should you take? This uh, question uh, is credited to our sound producer for the day, uh, V-Tran, who is uh, our traveling nerd on Currently Nerdy. Um, I would probably say that if you were going to see kind of Al-Andalus, to go through Tangiers, Morocco, Portugal, Spain, to hit it up that way, um, one, you'll get a good chance to see a bunch of the expatriates that live in Tangiers and Morocco, which is kind of weird, but kind of interesting. But you also see the kind of cultural linguistic connections there. Um, if you were, on the other hand, we're going to do Spain, uh, France, I would recommend Algeria, Libya, France. 
right? Go through that port. So those are the kind of tours that I would recommend. Anyways, let's end the rapid fire round and get back to our main topic, talking about kind of high culture of Al-Andalus. And the high culture of Al-Andalus is really epitomized by the level of literacy and literature. There was a huge amount of books in Al-Andalus, probably the highest level of, of actual physical copies of books anywhere in Europe at that time. It rivaled the Al-Hikma, uh, the Bayt Al-Hikma in Baghdad, the House of Wisdom in, in Baghdad. So there's the kind of two cultural and literary centers of the, of the medieval world are Baghdad and Cordoba. That's right. It's the Muslim world is really the heart of the liter the literary world um, globally, and it's a result really of the availability of paper. With the Muslim uh, Empire kind of conquering that region, which uh, includes a series of of trading routes that is colloquially referred to nowadays as the Silk Road, which is a kind of inaccurate way of looking at it. In reality, it's a Silk Roads. Um, China really brings paper. The availability of paper vis-a-vis -vis China um, is brought thanks to uh, Muslim trading. And so you see a lot of paper in Baghdad and a lot of paper in, in Cordoba. And in particular, you have projects of translation. There's a very famous uh, figure known as Lubna of Cordoba. She, in the 10th century, she was the secretary of Al-Hakam II. She actually started off as likely a Spanish slave, uh, a convert to Islam, who then is freed and becomes a huge scholar at the time. And which her job is, she writes treaties and poetry, and more importantly, translation. So she takes these writings that were in Latin and Greek and translates them into Arabic, making them accessible for the first time. She's part of this, this kind of project of women, 170 literate women and translators who are whose sole job under Al-Hakam II was to go out and procure books for the library in the Medina Azhara which becomes this massive library that that contends with with Baghdad and it's it's really the role of women here and women scholars Lubna of Cordoba and her 170 literate women that translate those books that procure those books that write treaties and poetries and really build up the literary or the the text culture in um, uh, the Al-Andalus, and that text culture leads to the highest literary literacy rate in all of Europe. So you don't just have a lot of books; you have people reading those books. It's quite interesting that a religion that is founded by by uh, Muhammad, who is purported to have been illiterate, becomes such a scholarly-based religion. And that's because Islam, like Judaism, is rooted very much in a kind of scholarly tradition that is a tradition of debate and discussion, a tradition of, of historicizing religion that is trying to trace uh, the historical roots of religion. It's very much part and parcel to Islam within the kind of isnads of the hadiths. And so there a huge culture of books emerges and, and women play a huge role in this as well. As well as Jews, uh, the Al-Andalus becomes the, the home of, of a Jew, massive Jewish population. And they find themselves at home because of the religious tolerance in uh, Al-Andalus. Al-Andalus, both Christians and Jews found that they could practice their religion freely while they were uh, sort of second-class citizens, if you will, in that they paid a higher tax rate known as a jizya. 
they did practice their religion freely and rose into the ranks. Um, one of the most famous uh, kind of Jewish political figures is Hestai ibn Shaprut, who becomes a massive figure in Al-Andalus, and he actually helps uh, Lubna of Cordoba with her kind of literary and book project, and he becomes the foreign minister, if you will, of, of Al-Andalus for a uh, Three separate rulers, um, and the Jewish population in particular at this time found that they ha- were fleeing from medieval Christian lands, particularly under the Carolingian dynasty, and fleeing into Al-Andalus where they found a safe haven because under the Islamic tradition, both Christianity and Islam, and you can check the first season for more on this, are seen as Ahli al-Kitab, that is, that they are part of the people of the book, that they are part of one family of traditions, whereas Christianity really develops um, in opposition to Judaism in the late antique uh, history, you can check out this fantastic book by Boyard known as Borderlines, The Partitioning of Judeo-Christianity, that looks at how Christianity and Judaism really develop as religions as oppos- in kind of defining themselves as not the other. So Christianity is like, we're Christians, which means we're not Jewish, and Jews are saying, we're Jews, meaning not Christians. And so there's this kind of partitioning of that tradition, what eventually is really kind of one tradition partitions. And that leads to the kind of a rise of a really virulent form of anti-Semitism in Europe that eventually lead, you know, manifests in, in the modern nation states as well, and the kind of horrors of, of the Holocaust. But really, in the medieval world and in the Crusades, you find that Jewish populations were targeted. So in the 11th century during the Crusades, the first victims of the Crusades were the Jews. I mean, the, the People's Crusade, as it was marching through Europe, didn't kill Muslims. It stopped in Worms, and it slaughtered the Jewish population in Worms, in, in Germany, and in Cologne. It just decided, you know, we're going to take vengeance on, on those people who were called, they called them Christ killers, and they just slaughtered them. And then they decided, okay, now that we've killed the Jews, let's move on into the Near East and kill as many people as we can in, in, the, in the Holy Land. And so you, you, there was a mass migration of the Jewish population into uh, Al-Andalus. And that produced not just massive kind of political figures uh, like Hasdai, but also philosophical figures. Maimonides becomes the one well, preeminent Jewish philosopher thanks to the kind of literary scholastic tradition of Al-Andalus. And Maimonides is probably the one of the foremost Jewish scholars um, living in Al-Andalus. And his philosophy also has a huge influx or influence on Europe. And because there's this huge population in Al-Andalus, and this population is indigenous and views Al-Andalus as their home, the Reconquista ends up becoming a traumatic event for the Jewish population. So the Reconquista doesn't just purge Muslims out of the Iberian Peninsula, it also purges Jews. And this has an impact on the uh, identity of Sephardic uh, Judaism. What happens is that the loss of their homeland ends up reintroducing Jerusalem as an important site of identity. As a result of kind of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Crusaders in the 11th century, um, there is a a kind of concurrent destruction of the Jewish community there. Now, for those of you interested in the history of kind of Jerusalem, check out my head-on history special episode on Jerusalem, where I talk about the fact that we take Jerusalem's importance as a given, 
like we take it for granted. We're like, oh yeah, it's always been the Holy Land, but that's not true. That that the importance of Jerusalem has waxed and waned throughout history, and that there's moments where Muslims and Christians and Jews were really interested in Jerusalem, and other times that they weren't. For example, we know that after Constantine transformed the the city into a kind of Christian city, the Christians really stopped caring about. Jerusalem. And when the Muslims took Jerusalem and they held it for several hundred years, uh, over 500 years, the Christians really didn't care until uh, the, the papal bull and the call and the kind of threatening of the Eastern Roman Empire, Alexius sending out this call of please help us um, as, as, a as a result of the Battle of Manzikert and all that. Um, you know, suddenly Jerusalem becomes important for Christians yet again. Um, and similarly for the Jewish population, that the Jews weren't particularly interested in Jerusalem for much of, of, of the history. There was a Jewish community there, but it's actually the destruction of Jerusalem under um, the Crusaders and then the Reconquista that reintroduces Jerusalem. And it's not just Christians and Jews, Muslims too. The Mamluks had very little interest in, in Jerusalem. Um, and it isn't until, again, the Ottomans where they kind of rebuild the city. But what happens is these two kind of traumatic moments. We could say that there's three kind of traumatic moments in Jewish history. First is the destruction of the temple in 69-70 CE by the Romans. This really scatters uh, Jews to, to the kind of four winds and then the, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt really forces them out of Ayudea um, and, and really kind of all throughout the Roman Empire. And as a result, what happens is rabbinical Judaism develops. And that is a Judaism that is out, that is uh, decentered or Judaism that is decoupled from the temple. Um, and so that's the first kind of traumatic event. The second traumatic event is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Crusaders. It's all of a sudden the small community is living there. Jerusalem may not be important, but suddenly it's gone, right? Completely destroyed by the Crusaders. And then you have the Sephardic Jews who found Cordoba and, and Granada as their home. They didn't see their identity wrapped up in Jerusalem in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Muslim Spain meant more to them than Jerusalem did. But the loss of Muslim Spain, of Al-Andalus, of Islamic Spain, not Muslim Spain, Islamicate Spain, then because it's a mix of these kind of communities, Christian, Jewish, it is the destruction vis-a-vis -vis the Reconquista that all of a sudden they're like, we need a homeland. And so you have figures like Nachmanides, who returns, who's born in Catalonia, Spain, um, in, in Genoa, and then goes to uh, Jerusalem and reestablishes. He, he does aliyat. He makes this pilgrimage and he reestablishes a Jewish community. And that is the beginnings of the sort of religious conceptions of a Jewish homeland begins after the Reconquista. So there's an impact. The loss of, of kind of Islamic Spain, of Al-Andalus, produces the early religion, the kind of beginnings of religious ideology about a Jewish homeland that then, then gets co-opted in uh, the kind of nationalist project of Zionism. It's actually the Reconquista that really brings that trauma to life. Um, and so the, the, that's one of the kind of unintended impacts of, of uh, the Reconquista. And culturally and intellectually, while there is a purging that happens of Al-Andalus, the reality is that Al-Andalus was the gateway into Europe. A lot of uh, Muslim ideas flowed through Al-Andalus and into the broader European world. And in particular, we find um, that without Al-Andalus, there would be no Renaissance or Enlightenment. It's really the translation projects that we see in Cordoba under Lubna and Al-Hakam II that 
translate Aristotle, that translates the classical works into Arabic, that the, the intermediary of Islam is what reintroduces those works into the European world. Remember, medieval uh, scholastic tradition, especially defined by Augustine of Hippo, was anti-classics. They didn't like the classics, even though they were at simultaneously like secretly loved it. Augustine of Hippo read all the classics, but he wanted that stuff banned because he saw it as a threat to, he saw the kind of paideia culture of, of the Hellenic world as a threat to the development of the Christian scholastic tradition. It's actually Al-Andalus that reintroduces all of that. And we see this in even in the kind of language, right? So there's a linguistic sh sharing. Sukkar is the Arabic word for sugar. And where do you think the word sugar comes from? It comes from sukkar. Naranj or norange, right? Norange is orange. The word orange literally comes from the Arabic word norange. And if you go to Seville and you go to uh, uh, the, the Andalusia, you'll still see those orange trees all planted. And that's a result of Al-Andalus, the introduction of those words. Alcohol. Alcohol, right? It's interesting that Muslims are reputed to not drink, but the reality is that they introduce these kind of distilleries into the uh, Muslim world. Uh, I remember uh, my my our sound producer V talked about his trips during into Al Andalusia and through Seville and in Spain and seeing these olive trees and these distilleries and kind of being, you know, finding it fascinating that it's the Muslims that really introduce drink this kind of distilling of alcohol and even the word al alcohol or the Spanish word Diablo it comes from the Arabic Iblis um, or safari comes from safar or you know to go on a safar or a safar it comes from safari as well as that most hated of words algebra or algebra <laughs> Right, and that's a, not just because there's a linguistic exchange there's an intellectual exchange that the uh, Enlightenment and Renaissance thinkers don't just pick up Aristotle again and, and Plato. They first access them via Muslim thinkers. So Al-Khwarezmi, the founder of algebra, his mathematic formulas make their way into uh, the Christian world, into medieval Christian scholar, scholastic tradition, and really informs the, the production of algorithms and calculations. Um, Al-Batani's astronomical works are at the heart of Copernicus and his heliocentric model. Without Al-Batani and Al-Andalus, there is no heliocentric model in Christian Europe. There is no Copernicus. There is no Kepler. It actually is Al-Batani. And similarly with, with philosophy, uh, Ibn Rushd, Aver, known as Averroes, becomes really the, for, the forefront thinker of Aristotle. And people don't often know this, but the kind of history of secularism it actually starts with Ibn Rushd. Ibn Rushd is the first who really starts to engage in this idea of, a, of a, maybe a secular tradition. And in the medieval Christian world, to be an atheist, the term was to be an Averroist. So atheism and secularism were deeply, not that Averroes himself was an atheist in any way, shape, or form, but that kind of critical, skeptical inquiry then makes its way into the Christian Socinian tradition, and that Socinian tradition inspires the Enlightenment. That's where Locke draws. I mean, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or what he calls life, liberty, and property, that is a Sharia uh, designation. If anyone who has studied fiqh knows that that comes from Sharia, 
that life, liberty, and property are three core principles, along with other ones like genealogy and dignity, etc., that are part of Sharia, that then be inspire the Christian Sokinians, who in turn inspire the Enlightenment. Now, there's an argument to be made on, on why secularism, that is, you can define secularism kind of three different ways, specifically via um, Nikki Keddy, who argues the retreat of religion from the public sphere, the uh, decrease in religious beliefs, as well as the decrease in people who view religion as a point of authority. Any, any way of those definitions, there's a reason why that brand of secularism that has become kind of classically associated with the so-called West, it actually has its roots in Islam vis-a-vis -vis Ibn Rushd. But the reality is that that brand of secularism never becomes too widespread in the Muslim world because the Muslim world's relationship with religion was different. And it's because of Al-Andalus. Al-Andalus was a religiously tolerant society. Because it was religiously tolerant, it was not a it did not produce a series of confessional wars. These confessional communities, Protestant, Catholic, etc., they didn't go to war with one another, and they didn't. The same thing didn't happen. I mean, today we talk about Sunni and Shia, but that's a contemporary conflict. Those confessional conflicts didn't exist in Al Andalus. So Al Andalus, religion was a productive and constructive experience. Religion was already restricted vis-à-vis -vis the theories of Ibn Rushd and others who saw the religious scholars, the ulama, as a sort of, of check against the un, uh, you know, the unmitigated power of the emir or the khalif. And so religion acted as a sort of way, uh, a check on that branch of government, if you will. And so as a result of this kind of productive relationship of religion in the public sphere, religion producing uh, religious tolerance, a check on political authority, there was never a, a sort of social necessity to develop the type of secularism, even though secularism as an ideology was rooted in, his, in Islamic thinking, it never needed to develop in the way that the Enlightenment needed it to. Uh, Locke is a product of the confessional wars of Europe, the confessionalization of Europe, the breakdown of Europe into Catholic and Protestant and Calvinist, etc., and the resulting violent conflict and religious oppression. I mean, Queen Bloody, you know, what is it, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, right? And Queen Bloody Mary and her persecutions, uh, Catholic persecutions, the Protestant persecutions of the Catholics, Guy Fawkes trying to blow up the parliament, dude was a Catholic, right? All of those are really created a social need to develop the kind of secular ideology, but that all comes from, from Ibn Rushd. Um, so that's kind of a, a in the intellectual legacy of Islam found its way all the way into uh, the United States and is often not, not talked about. Um, or, and not just in the kind of political and philosophical thinking, but also in the way that we understand medicine. Um, Al-Zahrawi, who becomes known as uh, Abul Qasis in um, the, the European world, becomes the, f the leading thinker on surgery. Avicenna's medical texts introduce the, reintroduce the idea of the humors, reintroduce the idea of uh, the pos of quarantine, but it's actually um, Abul Qasis who brings the idea vis-a-vis -vis his kitab al-Tasrif, -tas um, introduces surgery. The idea that hemophilia might be a genetic disorder, that there may be uh, stones that can be removed to so the beginnings of modern neurology, the beginnings of modern surgery, even neurosurgery, and the quarantining of people, the birth of modern medicine and the hospital 
comes out of Al-Andalus and these thinkers. And so when the Reconquista happens, those structures remain. And those thinkers then get adopted into Christian Europe. Their texts are engaged with, and eventually they are kind of become the sort of forgotten legacy of Europe. I mean, one only needs to look at uh, Kant's, Immanuel Kant's, graduation certificate, his diploma, at the top of his diploma, uh, I think it's Kant, it could be Voltaire, I think it's Kant, that says, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. why on earth is Immanuel Kant, this enlightenment thinker, why does his degree, his diploma have the Bismillah up at the top, right? So this is kind of this forgotten history. And these, they, there's also a series of kind of religious impacts as well. Al-Haytham, uh, who is the father of modern optics, his theories are actually absorbed also into uh, the Christian world vis-a-vis John Wycliffe, who re-understands or reinterprets the seven cardinal sins as mirror distortions. So basically using the science of Al-Haytham to rethink religious theology. And this actually is a result of results in Protest- some of the kind of developments of Protestant thinking. So again, Al-Andalus, I'm not saying that Muslims are the result of Protestantism or Muslims produce secularism or any of that, but rather that we can trace those histories to Al-Andalus and the culture that is produced in Al-Andalus. And as well, finally, I should say that there's also uh, a, a change in beauty standards really romantic love as we come to know. We try to assume that love has existed for time immemorial, but that's not true. Much of the pre-modern world saw love as complex. That There was erotic love, which was sort of a disease, a sort of a, an affliction that you would be hit with, and it would produce uh, uncontrolled lust, which would lead to like literal physical assaults and stuff. That was called erotic love. And then there was philos, which was brotherly love, uh, the agape, which was selfless love. But, er- but romantic love is is really an invention of medieval Europe and particularly the troubadour culture. And the troubadour culture comes right out of Al-Andalus. And it is the story of Laila and Majnun, the kind of original Romeo and Juliet, that inspires troubadour culture, this kind of courtly, chaste love that is romantic and selfless and passionate and maddening, and they become the product of songs. And if you don't know the story of Lila Majnun, it's very much the architectonic that of uh, Romeo and Juliet. There is this poor uh, peasant boy, some say his name was Arjun, no one's quite sure, but he was, uh, this peasant boy was in love with the, this merchant's daughter named Layla, and they would steal glances of across uh, one another, across the marketplace. And from very early on, they were they developed deep, deep love for one another. But she was the daughter of a rich merchant, and the rich merchant was not having any of this. And so he sent his thugs out to beat up on, on this young boy, and he beat him up, and he spirited away his daughter, where he married his daughter to a wealthy merchant, and these two never got a chance to see each other again. That experience broke this young boy, and he became obsessed with her. He would travel as a sort of itinerant, homeless, beggar type city to city wandering whispering about the beauty of Layla and as a result of this kind of madness he became known as Majnun the possessed and he would say that if you were to scratch me you would find underneath me Layla for I am but the veil so he had this kind of love of her that was that was 
impassioned and insane and star-crossed because he could never truly experience it, that love and as a result she ended up dying because she she wasted it she really yearned for him and could never be with him and when he found out that she had died he went and searched out her grave and he lay on her grave and whispered layla layla until he wasted away and nothing was left him a very tragic sort of tale but the tale that really inspires troubadour culture and eventually romeo and juliet and tristan is sold and all those kind of stories and there's also other derivations of layla and majnun uh, one which they're so connected that every time you hit layla or majnun the other feels it so there's all kind of stories variations of it but that that architectonic of the the star-crossed lover and the passionate love comes out of troubadour culture which also brings us musical instruments the guitar you know the instrument of every freaking surfer boy in orange county who wants to bust it out at a party and show off his skills bro you, you know exactly who i'm talking about right he's got the puka shell necklace he's wearing rainbow sandals and jeans and a button-up shirt that's way too wrinkled and then all of a sudden he pulls out a guitar you don't even know where the guitar was it could have possibly been stored up his anus you have no clue but you know it was it just appears out of nowhere he's got this guitar out it comes and all of a sudden he's strumming the strings and he's crooning away to you know your body is a wonderland like every other fuck boy in orange county but that guitar is actually comes from the arabic word kitara and it is uh from the arabic kitara it's the a kind of a fusion of the european lute and the uh, Persian oud, all of that comes together and you have the guitar. You wouldn't have guitars. You wouldn't have uh, Sean Mendez and all these other types strumming their guitars if it wasn't for the troubadour culture that was deeply uh, influenced by Al-Andalus. Um, and then, of course, the, there's... Uh, another aspect uh, of this and that is the agricultural and culinary there's a very famous historian historian andrew watson in 1974 he wrote this uh, paper in which he talks about what he calls the arab agriculture revolution that happens in the 8th century to about the 12th century and what he says is that this is a, a new kind of uh agriculture emerges and this agriculture is deeply rooted in two types of irrigation that is uh, gravity uh, irrigation that is a water that is moved vis-a-vis -vis gravity as well as sakia or animal powered irrigation wheels which was introduced into spain during the umayyad times roughly the 7th and 8th century and these there was hu a huge amount of these these irrigation wheels and what this allowed to do this mass irrigation revolution allowed the introduction of a whole list of crops that involve things like citrus fruits from china it involves things like uh, the popularization of rice now rice pre-existed uh, the muslims that was in europe for a long time but the irrigation revolution really popularized rice it's uh, you know how you end up with rice as a popular dish in a lot of these regions it introduced uh, things like mango and the sugar cane all these different crops um, it brought in saffron all of it kind of revolutionized the culinary world of of uh, al-andalus and as a result europe and we have uh, evidence of it in this kind of book of agriculture that was uh, written down it's called the mukhtara kitab al-filha and in it, we see the crops that were introduced. These crops then had an impact on the way 
on the type of foods that people would eat. So spicy foods, the introduction of certain peppers, the introductions of, sh of sukkah or sugar, the introduction of saffron, a lot of the kind of cuisines that we take for granted, the various types of ceviche and paella and all these that we go, oh, these are iconically Iberian foods, are really a result of this agricultural revolution. So you can still see the traces of Al-Andalus in the foods that you ate or in the foods that you would eat. And this is a, this is kind of what we historians do. Historians are, are uh, scholars of ghosts is what we do. We study ghosts, the spectral remains of the past. And that's what the we really see is the spectral remains of Al-Andalus in the Iberian Peninsula to this very day. And and I think uh, I'm, I'm going to end with kind of two little anecdotes here. The first is the story of a guy named Ziryab. Ziryab is a uh, the word for jaybird or blackbird uh, in Persian. And this figure is kind of controversial. We don't know his ethnic origin. Some people believe that he was a Mawali, maybe of Kurdish origin. But most people argue that he was probably North African, Berber, or more. Um, and he was in, in Damascus. And he's this figure, this kind of weird character that comes into Al-Andalus and he's colorful and exciting and he's flirting with the ladies and he brings with him this thing. This thing is called an oud. An oud is the instrument that is the forefather of the kitara or the guitar. And people are just like, what? What is this thing? This lud that he's playing. He's got, uh, you know, there's this fifth pair of strings. He's, there's an eagle beak. There's a quill, you know, and he's, he's got, he's dyed some of the, the strings of certain colors. And he's playing this music that's just enchanting. And people are obsessed with him. He's just fun, wonderfully figure in, and he brings with him all sorts of scandal. He comes in and he goes, look, you know what? We need to start wearing clothing according to seasons. That's right. He decides to change up his clothing. When it's in fall, he wears certain types of clothes. Winter, other types of clothes. And he wears all these colorful garments. And rather than wear a turban, he wears a wool hat. Uh, which is why the turban never really took off in Europe. And instead, you have caps and hats. You know, today you wear beanies and whatnot. That's all, all comes from this guy named Ziryab. And the fact that you... Get a seasonal haircut. Ziryab introduces it. The fact that you wear change your clothes according to season, that you put on blazers and coats in the winter and you put on shorts in the summer, that's Ziryab. And he also brings with him all sorts of weird stuff. Not only did he bring this weird instrument, he brings asparagus. What? Asparagus? He also loves three-course meals. You know what? He's like, no, I'm not going to have one meal. I'm going to have three-course meals. What means we're going to start off with some type of appetizer. I'm going to have a main course, and then I'm going to have dessert. That's right. Dessert comes from Al-Andalus. Now, dessert had pre-existed. The Muslims, the Romans, uh, started all, had desserts as well. Usually fruits and nuts is what they would eat at the end. Um, but the idea of a three-course meal, not a ten-course meal, comes from Al-Andalus. The idea of appetizers comes from uh, Al-Andalus, and specifically a particular type of dessert, that is sugar desserts, because all of a sudden sugar becomes readily available, so you have ice desserts. Um, you know, ice becomes readily available, and so you have this idea of frozen fruits and sugared fruits and sugared nuts and dates. Um, the idea of ice cream, that is something that cleanses the palate after you eat something, particularly heavy spiced food, that is dessert, and it is a result of of 
uh, Al-Andalus and Ziryab. And in addition to kind of changing the people's clothing and change, bringing in music and, and bringing in uh, culinary changes, he also decides that, you know what? People get a little stinky during the summer, and so he introduces deodorant, a particular type of deodorant that removes uh, bad odors. You would take morning baths, then you would put on deodorant, and you would smell nice all day. He may have even possibly have invented toothpaste so that you would have nice teeth. All of this comes from Ziryab because he's this kind of traveling musician, cultural figure. He's kind of artistic. He's a he's a bohemian dude, and he's traveling through Al-Andalus, and he brings it all through the European world. That's when, you know one of the anecdotes of how this kind of cultural exchange happens. Um, and the other anecdote I want to end with is is that of uh, Alvaro, who is a priest, uh, and he writes, "Oh, the pain and sorrow! The Christians have forgotten their own language, and in every thousand you will not find one who can write a letter in respectable Latin to a friend. Well, as soon as they have to write." Arabic. There is no difficulty in finding a whole multitude who can express themselves with the greatest elegance in this language. So what Alvaro was talking about is the fact that Christians had adapted Arabic, not Latin, as um, the kind of uh, language for them, the lingua franca, that this was an era not just of tolerance, but cultural exchange. That this isn't just, when we say Islamic Spain, we don't just mean Muslims. We mean Muslims, Christians, and Jews that work together to create this culture, to produce this particular moment in history. Um, that becomes known as Al-Andalus. And he, he kind of laments this kind of, oh, the Christians have forgotten. And so one can make the argument today that the Christians in the Western world and the Iberian Peninsula has also forgotten, but this time they have forgotten their Muslim roots. And finally, I'm going to end with uh, my last anecdote. I know I said two, but I'm going to give you a third one. And that is the reasons why the Queen of England is a Muslim. And you're probably going, what the hell is Ali talking about? That's right. Queen Elizabeth Windsor has Muslim roots. It actually comes from this figure known as Zaida. Zaida was a Muslim who during the Berber uh, revolution, the Berber uh, rebellions in the 11th century, f uh, fled her, her hometown um, and ended up converting to Christianity and marrying someone known as Alfonso VI of Castilla. This is a, a weird moment in history. She's a Muslim princess. She marries a Christian guy, changes her name to Isabella. So you go, well, who cares? Well, and it just so happens that Zaida is a descendant of Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad. She and her descendants eventually end up marrying the Earl of Cambridge, who is the ancestor of, you guessed it, Elizabeth of Windsor, the Queen of England. And so there's this fun genealogy there of how Queen Elizabeth is related in some way, shape, or form to Muhammad and those, those Muslim roots that come out of this moment in Al-Andalus, this princess named uh, Zaida. So I'm going to end it there today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We're going to do another episode. This was just really an introduction to Al-Andalus to give you a little bit of the chronology and then to really take a look at the way cult cultures interacted, the social, cultural, and intellectual 
uh, kind of diffusement of Al-Andalus into the European world, the legacy of Al-Andalus, another way of looking at the kind of the specter or the ghosts of, of Al-Andalus today, um, and also a way of kind of pushing back on the kind of Puritan narratives that we see about Europe, the kind of language that we hear about migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. This this kind of history is reimagined all of a sudden. It's no longer an era of, of, of tolerance and Christians and Muslims and Jews living together, but an era of conquest and evil and, and, and the reconquistas invoked as a way of kind of pushing back against those refugees. So I wanted to present a history that complicated that narrative, that showed us the ways in which the Muslim world and the Christian world are entangled and that even when we say Muslim world and Christian world, that those are constructs, that reality is that, that, that this world was intertwined with one another. Christians, Jews, and Muslims lived side by side with one another and that everyone has a Zaida in their past in the same way that the Queen of England is related to Zaida and Prophet Muhammad, so too is, are there all these kind of entangled history. For those of you, we're going to continue this in another episode. For those of you that are interested in this history, I highly recommend a really great book by Maria Rosa Menocan called The Ornament of the World, How Muslim Jews and Christians Created a Culture of Tolerance in Medieval Spain. A fantastic, fantastic book that really talks about this kind of moment known as Al-Andalus. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave some feedback and review views on iTunes. I love hearing what you have to say. Give us five stars and leave a couple comments. I love reading what you have to say. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. I love hearing from all of you. Anyways, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Stay smart, my beautiful nerds. <laughs>